You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Could I ask you, please, if you could switch off your cell phones at this point so that there's nothing more disconcerting to have one go off in the middle of a talk? Um, I'm Vikram Nehru. I'm uh, a uh, senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm also the Bakri Chair for Southeast Asian Studies, and I want to welcome you all. Uh, we're very fortunate to have today Kaushik Basu, the Chief Economic Advisor and Ministry of Finance for the Government of India. Kaushik um, is visiting Washington as part of the Indian delegation for the spring meetings of the Bank or the World Bank and the IMF. He is uh, currently on leave from Cornell University, where he's the Professor of Economics and the C. Marx Professor of International Studies. He's a, had an absolutely stellar career uh, in academia and is currently a practitioner uh, in India. You have his, uh, the details of his CV in front of you, so I won't go into any, uh, any more detail on that. Um, I'm going to invite Kaushik to speak now. He'll speak for about 35 to 40 minutes or so. And then uh, we'll open it up uh, for a discussion. Kaushik, floor is yours. Welcome. Vikram, uh, thank you very much. Thank you also, uh, Carnegie Endowment, for the invitation. It's uh, one of the most major think tanks, and it's a great honor to be here to be speaking to you all. Uh, my lecture uh, today is strung around a forecast, uh, a somewhat dire forecast, uh, that the world economy is uh, lumbering up towards another crisis in 2014. Uh, I'm normally not in the business of uh, making forecasts, but now that I um, um, wear the hat of a policymaker, I thought that since I actually feel very strongly about this, this is something that I ought to talk about. Uh, anyone making a forecast usually takes some cover. And I should first of all tell you that if you ask me, is it 100% that this is going to happen? Well, I usually, I, not usually, I never answer yes for anything 100%. I mean, life is full of uncertainties. Number two, I mean, one of the reasons for sounding the warning is uh, because um, you can do things about an economic crisis, and uh, you should uh, begin to take measures, and I will uh, talk about that. However, this um, um, idea is just what around which I want to build the story of India. And uh, when I had discussed with Vikram, I mean, that was the topic. I mean, it's the Indian economy, how we are doing. It's just that I want to keep this in mind, and I will come back to why I feel that there is a very likely, actually more likely than not, if I had to take a bet one way or the other, that there is a global crisis coming up in 2014. But where does India stand? Where will India get to? In and around that is what I want to talk about. Um, in understanding um, Indian policy making and the challenges, I will make use of my, um, I still consider it a very, very dual positioning. My entire career has been in academe, in universities and institutes. I once spent a year in the World Bank, but that was the year where Joe Stiglitz had created a post of a visiting professor. So even at the World Bank, I was there as a visiting professor. So um, when I went into government uh, in December 20. 2009, um, two and a half years ago, 
uh, this was for me uh, completely uh, as a greenhorn going into this. In fact, I should tell you that this was the first time in India that there was a chief economic advisor with no experience in government, which I think speaks very well of India. Uh, that they've done this. And uh, so one of the reasons I was very tempted to take it on and took it on was precisely because I felt that it is a sign of uh, developing self-confidence that India could do that, and I just had to do it. My experience was negligible, so I've been viewing this strange beast government from the belly of the beast and with an outsider's uh, perspective, which I think does help. Uh, in fact, my only interaction uh, with government, interaction, I was never in government, was around 1991-1992. I was uh, setting up the Center for Development Economics, founding this institute, which would be an adjunct of the Delhi School of Economics. And in India, regulations then, uh, more so than now, but even now, there are lots of clearances that you have to get from government before you can get an institute going. And I remember being bewildered in 1991 that you're being given a run for your money. I mean, bureaucrats don't write back. They are standoffish. They are rude when you say. And, you know, I did think of it as a, unless you define everything by definition as a, an act of self-interest. It was not an act of self-interest, setting up an institute, a modern institute. But I got an insight into the bureaucracy when finally fed up, I felt that I would have to go and see the finance minister if this institute would ever uh, come into existence. So I went to see the then finance minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, who finally, of course, now is the prime minister. And trying to make sure that I don't keep him waiting, I went well in advance. And I sat in the finance minister's waiting area. And a lot of these bureaucrats who were giving me a really hard time, they were poking their heads in, seeing me waiting over there, realizing that I'm going to see the finance minister. Finally, I got called in. I had a chat and usual, but more than the chat with the finance minister, I found that the attitudes of these people who had seen me waiting to see the finance minister had changed altogether. And that really helped so much so that I had toyed with the idea of writing to the finance minister and saying that from now on, if you allow me to come once a week, I won't disturb you at all. I'll come and sit quietly in your waiting area and go away. It'll just increase my efficacy with the Indian government. Now that I'm inside government, I have to say I, I sympathize. I mean, uh, thanks to the messy structure of decision-making, there are just far too many people calling on government, calling on bureaucrats. It is not to condone the system, but it is a systemic problem. It is really something that very little that individuals can do about. And it's a bit of the Stockholm syndrome over here. Once you've lived closely with a system that you begin to appreciate, it's not something I would tell you to continue with, but I understand why people behave the way they did. Let me begin with um, the... India story, the India story, the contemporary Indian economy that we deal with is really all post-1991. It's the reforms. Before that, it was uh, a relatively sluggish economy. Actually, one doesn't need the adjective relatively. Uh, it was a very sluggish economy uh, all the way till uh, the uh, late 1980s with negligible uh, growth. And India had begun in a very strange way. I mean, this is newspaper writing, and all of you are aware. It was a very, very open polity and society, culturally extremely open. 
uh, and mercifully so I feel today a lot of our strengths really uh, come from the fact that it is culturally politically it was founded in 1947 as a very open country but it was economically a closed country. Never socialism. Uh, as uh, Milton Friedman said that India is an example of socialism failing, India was never a socialist country. It was a very intrusive government, sort of getting into every uh, act, every decision making, the permission involved. And, but at the same time, it was not state owned, but it was an intrusive government. And it was a closed economy. So open politically, open culturally, but closed in term as an economy. And once you start on a closed path, it's, these things gather steam over time, and India became more and more closed. Each competing government, each competing um, uh, commerce or trade minister would raise the tariffs, the finance minister would raise the import duties, and they kept climbing and reached great heights of um, tariffs, a wall around the country by 1991. And there were faults which were completely obvious, faults in the policy making. Everyone was seeing it, but somehow nothing was happening. We needed a crisis to shed that. It's amazing how, um, and again, this is my outsider coming in as an insider, um, you realize that more than vested interest really, um, it is that people get used to things and you want to go along. It's a kind of vested interest. You don't want to shake up existing ideas. You go along with it as senior policymakers, even if you see that the industrial licensing system is throttling the economy. You don't want to stand up and say that that is the case. You know, Lyndon Johnson used to... Uh, talk about, uh, it was his favorite story of this uh, person who had applied for a teaching job in a school somewhere in middle uh, America, a very conservative belt, and he was being interviewed by the school board, and someone shot at him the question, is the earth round or flat? This person was about to answer, then held back nervously and finally said, I can teach it flat or round. You know, uh, policymakers very often take exactly uh, that line, that uh, they could go along either way. I mean, what they see, what they really know from scientific basis, they can shed that aside just to be a part of uh, what is being expected of them. In 1991, it was really Dr. Manmohan Singh who stood up and said that the earth is round. I mean, there were policies being undertaken, a licensing system, which actually had nothing to do with the left-right ideological debate the way it is very often portrayed. It's just foolish and not foolish policy. I mean, you don't want to put ideological labels on them. A certain set of policies which were just strangling the economy. To start up any activity, you need a license from the government. And to get that license from the government, you run around um, for days and months before you can start that. The crisis of 1991 was caused by the first Gulf War, which meant that India's uh, Foreign exchange reserves uh, started drying up and India was on the verge of a default. India has always been a very cautious country when it comes to international interactions. We don't like to do dramatic things, but we also don't like, like the risk of a default. So the whole nation got mobilized in 1991 in a way that had not happened earlier. The reforms then onwards uh, triggered off um, uh, changes which were 
very major. And I feel there's no way of underplaying that the reforms that took place from 1991 to 1993, they were not across the board. There are still very many areas where we do need reforms. I'll come back to some of those. But mainly to do with the industrial licensing and our international economic relations. India really opened up with a jolt between 1991 and 1993. And you know, certain policy mistakes, like saying that the foreign exchange that has come into India, we won't let people take this foreign exchange out. At first sight, if you're very, very short-sighted, that sounds like a reasonable policy. You've got very little foreign exchange reserves. India from 1977 to 1990, used to have a reserve of roughly $5 billion. That would be the Reserve Bank of India's reserves of foreign uh, exchange. And the belief was that it's so thin, our reserves, that you have all kinds of restrictions preventing people from taking that money out. But it just needs a two-stage thinking that people won't bring their money in if they know that you can't take that money out again. So you allow people to take their money out and they will be more willing to bring their money in in the first place. It's very simple reasoning, but again, it was like the view of the uh, earth flat or round, the, whatever was the accepted view, everyone went along with it and nothing was being done on that. I still remember at the Delhi School of Economics where I used to be, uh, debates in 1991 when the Prime Minister, then Finance Minister, said that we are going to lower tariffs, we are going to make it much easier for foreign exchange to come in and out. People getting up and arguing that that's the end. The mega $5 billion will flow out and a crisis will get precipitated. What happened after that, that $5 billion from 1977 to 1990, 1991, began rising after you allowed people to take their money out. And over the next 14 years, it climbed to $300 billion. So what happened was exactly the opposite of what some people feared, though a little bit of reasoning, two-stage rationality for individuals, and you would see that this was coming. And the growth picked up from 1994, India's growth picked up, and I take that 1991 to 1993 were the reforms, and really the growth picks up from 1994, and you're beginning to see a very, very changed economy. The next round were changes that take, took place early, 2000, meaning 2000, 2001, 2, there were important changes that were taking place, but more than domestic policy, it was on the international front. India is beginning to interact much more with the United States. I think it happened with the professional, professional Indians coming into the US, Silicon Valley. Also, India has, despite very high illiteracy, India had a well-developed higher education system, which also facilitated in, uh, interaction. And somehow India's relation with uh, US improved dramatically over a very short period, a couple of years. And you are seeing once again the effect of that from the year 2003. From 2003 till now, say the eight-year period, if you take 2003 to 2011, it's eight years of 8% per annum average growth. So it's another step up that takes place in India. Couple of reasons, I don't want to spend time on that. I want to come into what I'm doing now with the current policy situation. But several factors with the US, I feel there is a bit of a sense in the US has had that um, 
the world will not be a uni-power world. It's either going to be U.S. having a face-off with China or the U.S. needs to actively encourage other um, big economies to come up, economies, polities to come up. And India was in some sense an obvious choice because of very similar constitutional political commitments between the two countries, democracy, secularism, and I really feel living in India that, yes, economic policies, you can make mistakes and correct, you should not make mistakes, but you can make mistakes and correct. But political mistakes, like once you move away from democracy, are very, very difficult to correct. And we can just be grateful that uh, these moves were made very early in the founding of uh, modern India, that we've been gifted with this uh, system. With the, so the US perceived India as a, a good uh, third um, uh, economy uh, to um, uh, be with. And I think India's attitude also with the flow of People going back and forth with the U.S. began to change. There were other also fallouts, some uh, the back office work. And there was a strange fallout, which I find it, uh, it's my belief, but I feel it's quite interesting that, you know, there was a stage from about 2002, 3, there was a lot of attacks in the U.S. of the back office work going to India and to a certain extent to Philippines, South Africa. I really do feel that this kind of a trade, effectively this is trade is good for the United States, good for India, good for Philippines, good for South Africa. So it's not bad at all. But it's easy to take this view. And there were these television attacks on uh, American television. And I remember Lou Dobbs yeah, uh, evening after evening pointing out that how unpatriotic American business houses to get more profit were sending their um, back office work away to India, South Africa, Philippines and other countries. What did this was many small American businesses that were unaware of the profit that uh, cost saving that you could do by sending work out. This almost turned out to be a television advertisement for these small back office works. And advertising on American television is extremely expensive. So these small outfits would not be able to do it, whereas the attack worked like an advertisement for that. And if you see small back office work, little cubby holes in Indian cities, even in small towns, people sitting with 20 software engineers and a couple of data entry specialists, and actually working for offices in Canada, US, now also lots of European concerns coming in, there was a sharp rise from about 2002, three onwards, this goes up. India's growth rate picks up again. There is a savings and investment story. I'm cutting a long story short, but let me just actually point this out. India used to be a low saving, low investing country, but, and if, if there are questions, I can go into the details of this. It, this has changed. Um, it changed in two stages. The second one happened around 2003 or so. India moved into a high savings, high investing country, somewhat reminiscent of the East Asian countries in the 70s and 80s when these countries were growing very, very rapidly. India now invests about 35% of our national income is investment goods, machinery, factories, etc. And that is also powering the growth. So the growth rate picks up in 2003, and as I said, for the next eight years, it would be 8% per annum. And we were all very euphoric, but then came the year 2011, which uh, turned out to be a very, very difficult year. Let me explain a little bit about what's happening now, and then I will turn to the global scenario. This year, uh, the year that uh, we've just left behind us, saw India's growth rate 
dropping, dropping actually quite sh sharply. The growth that we are expecting during the year 11-12, uh, what I mean by this and in India, you count the year from the 1st of March 2011 to uh, sorry, from the 1st of April to the end of March uh, um, uh, this year. So the 11-12 uh, during this fiscal year, our projected growth is 6.9%. And um, it's come down from even during the, when the um, uh, global um, financial crisis in 2008 hit us, India's growth rate did go down to 6.7%, but after that it picked up immediately, went back to 8.4%. We got two consecutive years of 8.4% growth, and this year it's coming down, and the last quarter data that we have, three months data, the growth rate is down to 6.1%. Nevertheless, the official estimate is that the year will end at 6.9%, plus or minus 0.2 percentage, uh, uh, 2%, so 6.7 to 7.1, you would expect. And this is causing the mood to sour in the country. It's a, still a bit of a testimony that we feel restless today at a growth of 6.9%, which was unthinkable 15 years ago in India. So the yardstick has changed, uh, and, and there is a lot of anger and resentment that this has happened. What are the causes of this? The causes, are, and I should also tell you that inflation in India has been high. It was um, just around 10% a year ago. It's now come down to just below 7%, but only in the last two months. So the most of the year, we've worked with inflation between 9 and 10% inflation. And India is very intolerant of inflation. There are many developing countries, emerging economies, which have lived with much higher inflation. But India does not have a historical record of high inflation. So when you have inflation going at 10%, there is a restlessness in the electorate with signs that any government that lives with that for too long will cause the government to be voted out in the next election. So there is a flurry of political activity to bring the inflation down. So what are the causes of um, the uh, slowing down? Uh, there are three that I talk about, but I'm going to focus primarily on the third one, the globalization one. But let me first talk about the first one. There is, I think, a slowdown in decision making. Whether you're inside government or outside government, you cannot deny this. It's difficult to prove this statistically because we don't have data on decision making, but reforms, uh, file movement, my hunch is there is a slowdown caused by a complex uh, domestic factors. There were big corruption scandals that broke out. Once corruption scandals break out, there is a lot of finger pointing that begins. On every file that is closed and a decision that is taken, someone points fingers and says, look, there was some hanky-panky behind this deal being done. And for a bureaucrat, the easiest thing to do, if you want a smooth post-career nice job, is to not get into any controversy. So when a file comes where you have to take a decision and close it, why close it if you have three months more for your retirement? Send it to another ministry for another opinion before you close it, and by then you will retire and your record will be clean. I feel this psychology has played a bit of a role because of the finger pointing. India's bureaucracy does not get uh, um, uh, tributes for efficiency 
from 1947 till now, but there is a deterioration, I do believe, over the last year. Uh, also, the reforms slowed down, and this is to do with coalition um, politics, that uh, it's not a majority government, so the government has to depend on its coalition partners. There is a slowdown that is taking place. So that's one kind of um, factor. The second one is the battle against inflation meant that the inflation could have come from anywhere, and people still uh, have different views on this, even if it came purely from the supply side, that it's a supply shock, drop in agricultural production, which actually did happen in the year 2009. We have data, sharp drop in agricultural production. Nevertheless, you can control inflation by cutting back demand. When people say that, look, the inflation began because of a supply shock, why are you trying to manage your demand. The point is, even if it came because your supply went short, you can pull back on demand and cause prices to go down. And India acted on both the um, uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy. And I, the Reserve Bank of India, with which I have expressed some differences of opinion in the past, I have to say, nevertheless, I look at it with admiration as a body with a huge amount of independence about the best research teams in place, and they are auth authorized to take the ultimate decision on monetary policy, and they have done it with great astuteness. I mean, I may not have done exactly what they have done, but I think with a lot of genuine effort at doing it right, and there have been very important policy changes while I was on flight yesterday coming in into um, the US, which makes me feel that you will probably see growth triggering upwards. The third factor is the global slowdown. The global slowdown affects India today in a much bigger way than we could think of earlier. In fact, as India's chief economic advisor, I wake up in the morning and the first thing that I check up each day, the news, is not what is happening on onion prices, uh, vegetable prices, which is what my predecessors, chief economic advisors of 10 years ago, tell me they used to do. But I check up what's happening on the global scene as to whether it's going to wash up ashore and trouble us. First of all, India's globalization is probably the most dramatic structural change in the Indian economy that has occurred over, let's say, the last 15 years. And let me give you some numbers. In 19, I'll compare 1995 with um, 2010, 15-year period. If you take goods, export of goods, and import of goods, export plus imports of goods divided by GDP, 15 years ago, 1995, it was 19% goods and services, sorry, goods export plus import divided by GDP, 19%. In 2010, this had risen to 38%. So, of course, it had grown enormously, but even as a share of the national income, it's doubled. India's success story has been in the services sector. So, if you take the services, exports plus imports, in 1995, it was 4%. In 2010, it was 13%. Capital inflows and outflows. 1995, capital inflows plus outflows divided by GDP, 15%. Now it is 54%. Little surprise in the fact that what happens in India depends very, very um, uh, closely on what happens globally and Europe. And you can see on some of this actually directly in terms of indicators, you can see this. First of all, the global 
um, financial crisis, 2008, meant our growth rate went down. From before that, the previous year, India was growing at 9.3%. It suddenly dropped down to 6.7%. We inched back to 8.4%, and again, we are down to 6.9% as Europe went through a very, very rough year. So the global crisis of 2008, global crisis of 2011, both these reflect very strongly on what happens in India. The question now is, where is the world going? Over the last two months, as we were working on India's national budget, we were beginning to feel good that Europe seems to be steadying up. Greece is doing better. The yields which were climbing and climbing for Spain and Italy were looking a bit better. What led to this? And primarily, a variety of factors played a role, but it is the ECB basically rescuing banks by generating, effectively generating money. They were basically giving money with a three-year turnaround that you can buy these bonds and you have to pay them back after three years. The total amount injected, LTRO injection, I'm talking about, is roughly $1.3 trillion injected into these banks. Some 800 banks picked this up. Of these $1.3 trillion, Italian banks picked up roughly $260 billion, Spanish bank $250 billion. So they've got this fresh money, very low interest rates. What do they do with this? Many of these banks that were picking up this money really don't have fundamental strengths. And also we do know that European countries, their fiscal numbers look really bloated. If you take the debt to GDP, public debt to GDP, these numbers are very high, fiscal deficit is very high. So every time, in fact, in India, the Indian government comes under criticism for the uh, debt GDP and fiscal deficit. As a policymaker in India, you point to European figures to calm nerves in India that, look, we are uh, still far away from that because Europe really just deteriorated tremendously um, um, over the last four years or so, and that, that was the sovereign debt crisis. But what did these banks do? We now know, and there's a lot of evidence, that a large part of this money which they had got, they simply relent it back to the sovereigns. Why? They were getting a higher interest rate over there. So this was a classic case of carry trade. ECB generates money, you pick up the money, and part of the money you lent to sovereigns. So you have effectively rescued Spain and Italy for the time being. And if you look at the yields, Spanish and Italian, you could see immediately after the December 2011 and February this year, the two big moves that ECB made, it calmed the nerves and the yields began coming down. It was easier for Spain and Italy to borrow. Where will this go? My feeling is that this is like allowing a Ponzi to run for one more round. And you have to be very careful. I, I do want to word this carefully. Not to, I'm not saying that we should not have done that. I think, in fact, what ECB did was absolutely the right thing. You can't call it a halt in when the crisis is, you're in the middle of it in November 2011, you cannot choke off money and say that, well, we have to live with it. You have to do something broadly like what the ECB did. I have criticism coming for Europe's fiscal policy, but I think the ECB action was right. But you have to understand what this action was. It is basically buying time. And that's what 
the trouble with Ponzi's is. I want to give a very short lecture on Ponzi's. Uh, just before I joined the Indian government, my last academic paper, a slightly technical paper that I did, was on camouflaged Ponzi's, how you can run Ponzi's by camouflaging them. And my idea, of course, was to discourage them, but I gave a catchy title. The title was a marketing strategy for making money of innocent people, a user's manual. <laughs> and then I got this job uh, in India, and I was extremely worried some journalists would see this, and then it would be reported in India how my last thing that I did as an academic was write a manual on how to uh, uh, cheat ordinary people. But of course, the purpose of writing this was that people who run these camouflaged Ponzi's already know so you're not giving them any special advice. People who fall into this trap, and policymakers don't understand that, and you want them to understand. And you know, a lot of financial, uh, the financial sector's problems, they look very different in many different places, but they are different forms of camouflaged Ponzi's. And again, over here, I have to caution you, not every Ponzi is a bad thing. In life, there are periods when, over a short period, you build up money by saying that, look, I'm going to earn enough to pay you back. A lot of businesses that. If that continues for too long, you keep deferring the future, then it becomes a bloated Ponzi which has to be punctured at some point. Otherwise, it is a short period Ponzi which then you manage to diffuse by getting out of it, by making real investments. There are countries which over short periods of time would do this. You borrow from one bank, pay back another bank. Then again, borrow from this bank, pay back this bank. The interest rate keeps piling up during this period, so you are running a Ponzi. But if you know that midway through you will be able to make some big investments and actually grow fast and diffuse it, then it was a Ponzi which was worthwhile. And here's the short thing about Ponzi's. The start of a Ponzi at times is worthwhile, actually. Also, Ponzi's are very difficult to detect, to know which one is a Ponzi. This is what makes these camouflaged Ponzi's very, very hard. What I'm arguing is that what was done in Europe was like allowing the Ponzi to run for one more round. So there is a crisis, there is a shortage, these sovereigns are completely without money, they could go bust, causing global chaos. What do you do? It was decided that we will allow them to run for another three years. So money was infused into them. But see, at this stage, you've done nothing but just bought three more years by allowing the Ponzi to run for another three years. This Ponzi is going to, you'll get the next round of the Ponzi coming back a bit like a tsunami three years down the road. In fact, we know the exact dates. It'll happen in December and February when these three-year loans will mature and these banks will be called to pay these loans back. They will turn to the sovereigns to collect the money back. So unless very, very major reforms are put into place in Europe between now and three years down the road, you will be hit by a massive crisis when you'll again face a choice, do you allow the Ponzi to run one more round by infusing more money into the system? At some point when you do this, there is the risk of inflation. If you keep doing this, you will probably trigger off inflation at some point. And like with all Ponzi's, you know, another very curious thing on Ponzi's, I spent a lot of time studying this, including the life of this remarkable person, Carlo Ponzi, from whom we owe the name. His uh, remarkable intelligence was clear well before he actually uh, developed the scheme for Ponzi for which uh, he was incarcerated. He was before that for a petty crime, nothing to do with the finances. He was sent to a jail in uh, Canada 
and he used to be very close to his uh, mother in Italy, he used to correspond all the time, and he didn't want to shock his mother by saying that he was in jail. So he devised this wonderful um, scheme for continuing to correspond with his mother without alarming her. He said that he had become a jail warden in Canada, so that was his address. <laughs> and continued to correspond very merrily with his uh, mother. And then he struck upon this tremendous scheme of uh, a Ponzi, and uh, we know after that the world and the kinds of Ponzi's that we have seen in the world. Now, another thing about this Ponzi is that each step, you can always rescue that step, just that it's going to be a bigger wave that is going to come next time. And at some point, but not a well-defined point, it goes bust. We have seen little ones in India. There are these saving schemes, which we have actually seen bloat up, and then suddenly it's going to go bust. What should Europe do? It is the fiscal compact, which is crucial. And this is where I feel Europe is not really doing enough. And it has to get together. It's a very difficult act. I mean, I now sit in a government, and I do know that uh, what is very easy to criticize from outside is much harder to execute from within. But Europe has to pull up its socks and work on this. The problem is basically that uh, it needs a fiscal compact. As we have all been talking about, we realize that there is a certain structural flaw in the construction of the European economy, of the Union. It was maybe the m biggest human-made um, uh, economic uh, plan that has ever been executed on Earth, uh, the construction of uh, the European economy. And it's not surprising that fault lines will show up. And the fault line, indeed, is the fact that it's a monetary union at least for 17 of them, with a huge amount of fiscal autonomy. And right from 1999, uh, the uh, creation of the euro, you could see that um, for Spain, for Italy, um, uh, for many of these countries, borrowing becomes much easier uh, because they are part of a very robust union and they begin to borrow merrily from then onwards and this bloats up. What is needed now is a bit more of a fiscal restriction to say that, look, if you're a part of a monetary union, you also have to have fiscal rules which come from the top. And the fiscal compact which has been put into place is a bit of a hope about what could happen. But there are flaws in the fiscal compact. This is being written about already. It sets limits on how much fiscal deficit, budget deficit that each of these countries can run up. But each of these have caveats and flaws. First of all, it says that it can be 0.5% of GDP in terms of cyclically adjusted budget deficit. But it is not made very clear what cyclically adjusted budget deficit means. Then that you're allowed to make exceptions if it is a one-off expenditure or a temporary expenditure that makes your deficit goes up, you're allowed that. What is one-off and what is uh, temporary? You can create the same kind of expenditure from one year to another, give different names, make it look different, and each one looks like a one-off one. There's another one which I'm a bit surprised that in the compact this has been left somewhat open because even in India, which is only now maturing, we are very, very careful about this, is when you're talking about the uh, government's deficit, where do you treat state-owned enterprises? If you treat them as completely separate and simply put all these restrictions on the government's deficit but leave the state-owned enterprises free, you can easily park a part of your deficit on the state-owned enterprises. Tell them to run up deficits, borrow money, 
Of course, implicitly, if it's a state-owned enterprise, the state is standing behind it, but you create room for this to happen. In India, we try at least to keep a very close watch now on state-owned enterprises, knowing that in the end, it is going to be the government's responsibility to bail them out. There isn't enough clarity on this in the financial, in the fiscal compact in Europe. All this makes me very, very worried that the um, round of Ponzi that we had to do, no choice about that, the, uh, that we've gained, will come back three years down the road and it will be a crisis that we will face. And some Perception of this you can already see. After all, the yields after going down in Spain, especially, there is sign that the sovereigns are the sovereign is again having difficulty borrowing. The yield is beginning to rise. So that perception that yes, you've rescued the situation, but don't have enough of a set of policies in place is beginning to build in. What should India do, and where does India stand on this? As I said, we are going through a difficult year. I, our expectation, uh, this is the official expectation and also the unofficial expectation, that India is going to see a slow revival in growth in this year, 12-13, uh, bit more of a growth in 13-14, though I worry that if another European crisis comes, then the year 14 is going to be very rough for India as well. It could go down. But after that, I do feel it's going to pick up. I, my hunch is that actually the medium to long run prospects of the Indian economy are extremely good. Let me tell you what our compulsions are that we have to undertake right now. Given that another crisis could come in 2014, and maybe even before that as more and more players become aware that we are heading into this crisis, the crisis could come earlier. India needs to fiscally consolidate. You have to have enough firepower to be able to stall or deal with another crisis. So if you want another round of Keynesian uh, fiscal stimulus, you have to consolidate and have that ready space to do it. Because right now, India's fiscal deficit did go up in the year that has just uh, come to an end. We are trying to go back to fiscal consolidation, but this needs to be done very, very seriously. There are some reforms which uh, need to be uh, put uh, into uh, f uh, fast gear. One of them, in fact, the biggest criticism I get is from my academic colleagues, ex-academic colleagues in the US, is in India, we were trying to open up the uh, retail sector to uh, foreign direct investment from multi-brand retail, which would mean Walmart would come in, Tesco would come in, come in, Carrefour would come in. We were on the verge of getting that through when, for a variety of political reasons, it, it got stalled. I, I do believe, actually, I've studied enough now cross-country that it's a very important reform. India needs to get this in place. We have to get our growth working rapidly, moving up. There's another reform, and I'm speeding up, don't want to go into the details. Again, if there are questions, I will go into, is the way we carry subsidy to the poor and the vulnerable. And I have to, over here, distinguish myself from a class of policymakers who will say that there shouldn't be a system of subsidy for the poor and the vulnerable. A vibrant, growing economy will take care of the poor. I don't subscribe to that view. I feel there is a direct responsibility that the state has for the poor and the vulnerable. However, the way India carries its subsidies to the poor and the vulnerable, the leakage is very, very heavy. On food subsidies, there are very good statistical studies which show that the food that is 
collected by the state, which is meant for the poor and the vulnerable, 44% of that food leaks out on the way, sort of back into the uh, market price, so the shopkeepers make profit and don't give it to the poor. We can't afford that. We need to plug uh, the uh, subsidy system. And maybe something akin to the food stamps is the direction that we want to go uh, uh, into in India. And there is a opinion that is building up that that is what we need to do. And India currently is in the process of a very sophisticated social security system where each person will have a number. And a bit more than in the United States, you will be recognized by your biomarkers. So you put your thumb impression and it will recognize that you are number so and so coming. This will make the giving of direct uh, subsidies like food stamp much easier and there is a lot of effort actually in the Ministry of Finance to get this system going. So we need to put these reforms back into place. If we do, and I think some of these reforms we will get into place, my expectation is that after this choppy year, it will begin to pick up. We will feel the great uh, rocking that will come in 2014 and I think industrialized countries will get that even more than we will get. India will feel that. But beyond that, we should do fine. India should do fine and the growth should really pick up very, very well. Um, India's investment rate that I talked about at roughly 35% should go up a little bit more as the demographic dividend sets in. India's exports, we have done very well in terms of services exports, but manufacturing exports, we have not done well. There are two major blocks to doing better in terms of exports. One is our bureaucratic system is very slow and sluggish, too many permissions needed, too slow in get, getting those permissions out. We have to work on that. Our infrastructure is poor, we need to improve that. Infrastructure, I'm almost certain you will see improvement in leaps and bounds over the next five-year plan period. The bureaucratic efficiency, I don't know what will happen, but Indian uh, entrepreneurs have worked around this for the last 20 years. So if we can manage to improve uh, the culture of permissionism, if we can get rid of that, it'll be another boost. But even if we can't get, get rid of that, a couple of reforms along with infrastructural improvement should begin to see exports doing better as well. There will be some very special problems that we will face if there is a major uh, global crisis in 2014. Let me just comment on that and I will end uh, with this. See, one problem that in the uh, management of monetary um, policy and inflation we have faced in India, and that's going to come back to us in 2014 if the global crisis comes, is every time uh, globally, there is an effort to pump up certain economies by injecting more money into the system. Interest rates go very low in industrialized countries when they do this. In this scenario, for India to manage its inflation by raising interest rates causes a problem that would not arise in a conventional world where the whole world is looking roughly similar. Arbitrage possibilities arise on interest rates when interest rates in industrialized countries are very low and interest rates in India are being raised in order to control inflation. There is a possibility of arbitrage. You use capital controls to block some of that, but it's very, very difficult to be, have a completely effective system of doing so. This is something that we will face one more round uh, if the crisis of 2014 comes about. But again, my hope is that we will manage to ward that off globally because as we lumber up to that and begin to feel the 
choppy waves of the advanced waves of a tsunami coming, presumably the resolve will develop to get a fiscal compact going in Europe, which is stronger than what Europe has managed. If we escape the 2014 crisis, then it should be a smooth run from India, gradually stepping up back into a 9 to 9.5% growth and with a very good terrain in front of us, I do believe. But the immediate year, year and a half, along with the pickup and a dip in 2014 is the likely scenario over the next five, six years. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed, Kaushik. That was, uh, I'd, I'd expected to be both enlightened and entertained, and I wasn't disappointed. It was quite panoramic from India to Europe to Ponzi and back to India. Um, all right, let's open it up for questions. Uh, please give us your names and your affiliation before you ask the question. Uh, we have one right here in the front, Alex. We'll take three uh, at a time, and then we'll ask Kaushik to respond. Thank you. Thank you. Tazy Schaefer from McLarty Associates. Uh, I was interested that you singled out foreign direct investment in retail as one of the really important reforms. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what will be necessary in order to make that possible, and I realize this may go a little bit beyond your economist qualifications. We had a couple of other hands. Yes, please. The gentleman at the back. Um, Sasha Reiser Kosicki, uh, Eurasia Group. You, you listed a, a wide range of things that need to change in India for, for growth to be able to get on track. But given that Parliament hasn't passed any major legislation over the last two years, what are the chances that any of these changes that need to happen will happen uh, during the term of the current government? Thank you. Uh, right here, this. Right here. Thank you. Yes, uh, Ben from Mintio, uh, I'm also with Carnegie. Uh, you devote a lot of your time to the external factors impacting on the India economy. Uh, I would just like to latch on to what the uh, gentleman behind sent me. Um, when you talked about uh, the domestic factors and especially what you uh, termed um, slowdown political decision-making, which some commentators would rather find euphemistic, um, can you, uh, two, two, uh, 2014, which is the, your day you focused on, uh, happens to be also the, the date for the next election. And uh, with regard to one of the main problems, which you briefly touched, uh, the whole subsidy story, um, especially on, in the energy sector, what is the likelihood, this, is, has been this has been debated in India for at least the last decade and a half, Intensively, nothing has happened. Uh, given the political factors at play, whether it's uh, it's a uh, Congress or a BJP government, how likely is that actually India, any Indian government, will have enough breathing space to move forward and really deal deal with this that gets away from this unknown, up to nine percent GDP, which that eats up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, do people specialize on India? I'm uh, uh, Carnegie. Okay, uh, let me uh, go with uh, Tessie, your question on the FDI in retail. And actually, these questions are very, very related. 
the reason why I mentioned that, there are of course other reforms on the agenda. But many of the other reforms require a parliamentary legislative move. And for questions that were implicit over here, I am not too optimistic on that. So I can't sell that that part of India is going to move very clearly. So let me take just one example. We have a new goods and services tax which is coming in, which is a value-added tax which will be all-embracing. And actually, it's a bigger reform than most people realize because it's also going to clear up the tax administration and bureaucracy. Um, Enterprise does not have to face 10 different taxation authorities. It will be an overarching authority that is going to be uh, in charge of taxation. But the goods and services tax require very, very major legislative moves and a constitutional amendment. So though that is probably the most important reform on the agenda, the reason I did not talk about it is, I don't know. I mean, I feel hesitant to say that that will happen, that may or may not happen. We don't know how it will go. And one of the reasons, and I'm sort of joining up the other questions as well, why it will ha could have a problem is GST is so universally agreed upon as a, the goods and services tax that it's a good policy move that for the opposition, it's not worthwhile to let this government uh, usher in the goods and services tax. And because it needs a parliamentary uh, move, the opposition is in a position to stop it. So curiously, the fact that it's agreed by everyone that it's a good thing could become its biggest stumbling block for a government that is a minority government it might not go through. The FDI, to uh, um, elaborate a little bit on this, is I um, um, was part of a committee actually that came out with one of the first recommendations in India to open up this sector. And the reason is, you know, um, I, and since I've lived in Ithaca before that and uh, my, my colleagues have agitated against big retail stores, I was aware of those arguments as well. But look at in, in India, the farm, the price that farmers get to the price that consumers pay, the gap is about, if you take the uh, 100 is the total price movement, two-thirds is the gap from farmer to consumer. So whereas in industrialized countries, it's one-third. So it's a very, very inefficient system from farm to the domestic buyer. There are Indian laws, uh, detailed APMC acts, since there seem to be specialists over here, which if we could amend them properly, Indian firms could actually play a lot of the role which the FDI uh, would do. But amending these laws are again hitting the same roadblock. So I feel, and our whole committee was agreed, that India ought to open up. And we were on the verge of this because it went through the committee of secretaries, etc. And then one of the coalition partners, the biggest coalition partner of this government, threatened to bring the, bring the government down if the government pushed through this, though technically a parliamentary clearance is not needed for this. It got stalled. My hunch is this one, since it does not need a parliamentary clearance, this one is going to come. So I virtually answered the second question, but uh, since you mentioned uh, yeah, um, parliament um, on passing laws, it's been slow and sluggish. A couple of less important bills will go through Parliament, but the most important ones will keep hitting roadblocks. And that relates also to the third question, you, since you brought up the energy sector. Let me tell you, uh, there are certain things which don't even need parliamentary um, uh, approval. But my hunches will meet with bigger uh, resistance, political resistance, than the FDI is decontrolling petroleum prices. We all feel that it is needed. In fact, on um, 25th of June 2010, uh, the Indian government may, uh, gave out a statement that uh, 
petrol is being decontrolled immediately and diesel will be decontrolled a decision in principle has been taken but close to two years now the government has not moved on uh, diesel the trouble is i mean there are economists international economists coming into india and will give you examples of countries emerging economies developing countries in the middle of such high crude prices if you go for a full decontrol of diesel I don't think government will be able to manage the political backlash that will be there. If there are trucker strikes sort of paralyzing the country, can the government handle it? The only good thing is I feel the top policymakers realize, and this again gives me hope for India, that the amount of expertise that is going in, we don't quite have the brain trust of Roosevelt in uh, 1933, but for an emerging economy, it is quite amazing the amount of outside opinion that is taken into government and the top leaders realize that you can't keep people sheltered from price movement what might happen and again i'm speculating is a partial decontrol which will allow diesel price to move up and down but it will still have a subsidy component at least that's not going to blow up is probably what we expect so yes i'm giving you a mixed answer i wish i could be more bullish on the legislative part of it parliament and i do feel very frustrated by that but again sitting inside i see the top leaders agreeing trying to push something through and getting stalled what might happen though is after the 2014 election whoever comes into power if it is a more uh, um, if it's a majority government since opinion has built up at the top for these important changes you will probably see a rush of reforms taking place in 2014 and again the 2015 onwards my hunch that india will do very well in fact i believe india will be the fastest growing country after that will be borne out even if it stalls over the next year year and a half yes please one in front and thank you uh, thank you koshik this is all very good uh, wonderful i i just wanted to talk a little a little bit about uh, the question about the key pillar in the interim which is fiscal consolidation the way we oh, sorry i should have introduced myself bijua daskupta institute of international finance the way we look at uh, the on the fiscal side uh, it, india has very little room to move on the expenditure side because on one hand you have the energy subsidies on the other hand you have the rising food subsidies even if you curb the leakages if you, even if you stem them and you also have a real need for uh, uh, increasing uh, uh, private uh, public investment in infrastructure so the fiscals on the on the revenue side you're constrained on the revenue on the revenue side that's where the real adjustment is needed but if you rule out gst and other tax reforms then how are you going to get achieve the fiscal consolidation thank you i'm sai prakash from working in india cements i come visiting here right now see now we go through any news channel in india any any particular website it's all about scams you have about the coal blocks you have about others you have about food with this kind of media coming in and everything becoming a scam where is this leading to i mean one is the decision making slowdown which we talked about the other is the cleaning of the system where is it leading to and where is it going to end thank you Sujit Man Singh American University you mentioned the 1991 reforms and now you have made three very good points that all the political parties all the top policy makers are agreed on the need for certain things but they're not happening my question is 
why do these people who agree make no effort or appear not to make any effort to persuade the others? There is no public relations job. I was in Delhi in the 1990s, and Dr. Manmohan Singh was alone, absolutely alone, attacked by his own party, attacked by everybody else, when the entire cabinet should have been out on the hustings <coughs> persuading people about the necessity of reform. How do you explain that, and how can that be remedied? OK, OK. Um, Bijoy, um, yeah, your two parts, the fiscal. The expenditure side, um, you point out that there is a little room for um, doing um, anything, excepting I should point out that these subsidy reforms, given that we our subsidy is so wasteful, the wastage is almost like a resource waiting to be dug up and taken out from under the ground. So a little bit of excavation on improving our delivery mechanism will can affect even on expenditure side big um, changes, but yes, it's hard. On the revenue side, your uh, concern that without GST getting stalled, if GST does get stalled, which is a distinct possibility, what's going to happen? See, the only um, uh, hope there, and that is, I think, a distinct hope, is that if you look at India's tax-GDP ratio, it had gone up to 11.8% four years ago. After that, it's been coming down, and it's down at 10.4%. It had come down to 10.3%, inched to 10.4% now. But we were at 11.8% without any of these major reforms. So the expectation is that the revenue side is going to improve with or without GST and a sharper improvement with GST over the years and some improvement on expenditure. In fact, you should never push that aside because we do need to keep up the pressure for expenditure cleaning up. So the fiscal consolidation is tough. but. I think it's going to happen because it was a great embarrassment that we missed last year's target, and it is really being appreciated, the importance of this. Sai Prakash, scams and media, and the, you're talking of the media talking about it every day. That actually is a good thing. Earlier, I, again, on this, it's very difficult to give numbers. We've just done a study the government had commissioned um, uh, by an independent group on the level of corruption and black money. These, I will get it actually as soon as I'm back. I'm told the report is virtually ready. But these are very difficult to estimate. So we really don't know whether in India the corruption, scams, and these kinds of scandals went up, or there is a certain maturity of civil society and the media that has really kicked up, drummed up this awareness. To the extent that I feel the latter suddenly has played a role, whether or not uh, the corruption has gone up, that is a very, very good thing. It causes a turmoil because some of the um, false comfort under which we were living, that it's petty corruption and scandals which uh, take place, suddenly get jolted out. And yes, the bureaucratic slowdown that I was telling you about is, I think, to do with the media whipping it up. And we also have a Right to Information Act, which is a very, very powerful act whereby you can pull out files and folders of bureaucrats and check up on what they have signed on, is causing a turbulence. But on the whole, my hunch is, Corruption and scandals have not gone up. The awareness has gone up. So a bit of a hope that this is like uh, South Korea under Park Chung-hee, a huge awareness, turmoil. And thereafter, I mean, you don't want to imitate the uh, uh, democracy being pushed aside. But the awareness that came 
is a bit of a turning point. And just like the economy turned around between 1991 and 1993, what good can come out of this media awareness is that even our political systems could do a bit of a turnaround, maybe because of this. So it could be a blessing in disguise. And Surjit, your question about if all these top political leaders agree, why can't they get together and persuade the rest and the people? But there is the answer I was uh, giving you, is for the political leaders across party lines, yes, you want to help the country, but a bigger target is to you want to get yourself back into power. This is a reality about politics. And at times what that means is that if you are completely agreed that policy X is going to get the economy triggered off, inflation dampened, the last thing you want is that policy X to happen under this particular regime. You stall it, hold it, let the regime uh, collapse, you come into power, and then you put this across. And GST is my example, which was meant to answer the question I had anticipated before you asked, is I think all sides agree it's a good thing. And for that very reason, there are political groups that would hold on to it, not allow it to happen, let 2014 come, and then we will usher it in into the country is the line that they have taken. Unfortunate, yes, but reality, that is what real politics is all about. Lorraine Harrison with the State Department. Given that um, India and the United States are quite aligned and that the biggest um, macroeconomic issue is what's going to happen in Europe. Is there things that we can be doing together from a policy standpoint that will help the situation? In a okay. Yes, please. Behind you. Uh, Bill Root, uh, you mentioned the impact of the European debt crisis in 2014. Uh, India apparently was not uh, adversely affected to a, an extreme, at least, uh, by the 2008 recession that started here. Uh, there's also uh, one of your neighbors in China that is looking uh, to difficulties for many reasons, and you didn't mention whether that would have an impact on India. And one would think that uh, why should India be more adversely affected by Europe than by U.S. recession or Chinese, or for that matter, by its internal problems. Yes, please. Thank you. Joni Simon, um, State Department as well. Um, I just want to follow up on Ambassador Schaefer's question. Um, when, when it comes to multi-brand retail, um, what do you think the likelihood is, considering what we've seen with single-brand retail and some of the local content requirements in that and other sectors, what do you think the likelihood is of it passing without some of those obstacles to investors? I, I didn't follow. Sorry, uh, can you paraphrase that a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. So following, when they actually liberalized single brand retail, we saw that there were certain requirements, like a 30% requirement um, that, it, that the investment come from village or cottage industries. And I've, from some of the private sector folks I've spoken with, I know that they're very concerned that some of those similar requirements will be placed on multi-brand once it actually ends up rolling out. And so I was hoping you could speak to that. Thank yeah, thank you very much. I, I get exactly what you ask. So um, Europe uh, being um, uh, a concern for both uh, US um, and India, what can we do together? You know, I mean, um, I've been a part of these uh, bilateral conversations with the US, with uh, your Treasury and our Ministry of Finance. And I have to say, in terms of sort of the exchange of ideas, it's a very comfortable feeling that you're speaking the same language. 
it's not always easy to carry out. Also, you have to remember, India is a still a very poor country. So we cannot, in, in terms of even international opinion, exercise the kind of influence that we would like to influence. At the same time, whether it be in a G20, where I do a lot of the G20 meetings and I speak to my US counterpart a lot, there is a shared sense of common problems that are emanating from some places. Even European countries outside the Eurozone with UK, we have very, very useful bilaterals on some of the pressures that can come from that. But that's where it is. It's an exchange of ideas, and the G20 is a forum through which you try to address it. But as we know, again, in these things, unless the pressure for powerful countries, European countries are very, very powerful countries, till they themselves begin to feel some of these pressures, you don't get action coming. And the hope is that well before 2014, the pressures will build up. And I, again, I don't know which way it will go, but there will be action more from that than any really agreement on this. 2008 recession, India was affected, but not that uh, severely. So why should it be more severe now, and what would China's recession do? Well, you know, India is globalizing by the day. So if you look at 1997, the East Asian crisis, it had a gentle impact on India. India was virtually a closed economy. India had just begun opening up. So it went past us with a small slowdown. 2008, India is much more globalized, and India felt it, but again, felt it at a certain level where growth went down from 9.3 to 6.7. The next crisis when it comes, India is globalizing by the day, it's going to hit us even bigger for no other reason but that also there is another reason is that the world itself is a tired place with these crisis coming one after another in such quick succession. So the global ammunition that you have is also beginning to get limited. In fact, in some sense, the 2011 sovereign debt crisis was a fallout of the previous one because the fiscal space had contracted because of the last round of crisis, and it would have contracted even more by the time the next one comes. China. Here is um, my um, um, feeling on China is that Overall, India's relation with China will continue to improve for the following kind of reason, that China also realizes that it's either going to be a world where it's a face-off between US and China, or it's, you, it'll be a world with a couple of other countries being nurtured and coming up, India, Brazil, etc. And it's in China's interest. No one wants a two-country power staring at each other. It's best to nurture other countries. So India has some Little disputes with China to do with waters, boundaries, etc. But I think that will be pushed aside. China's economic, which is what I think you were drawing attention on, all is going to have a big impact on India if China has a major slowdown. Uh, because if you look at trade, US used to be India's biggest trading partner till four years ago. China has overtaken that now. It's a sort of low-end products, manufacturing goods. China's coming in such a big way. China's bigger. If you lump Goods and services, U.S. is still bigger than China, but just on goods, China has overtaken. So we have a lot of exposure to China in terms of just direct trade between India and China. So should there be a crisis, it will affect us. So one of the things that does worry me about China, and I watch China closely like I watch Europe, but more for political reasons. China is a country of very powerful government, much more powerful than the Indian government with uh, control over the economy, much greater than the Indian governments, but a remarkably intelligent government that's made very, very good intelligent moves over the last 20 years and run a splendid economy. But once that intelligence falters or you make some mistakes, it's a government you can't dislodge anymore. And then 
the urge to stay on in power, even when you're faltering and you realize that if it's an end game, then you think of self-interest more than the economy, can cause things to sour very, very quickly. So I do worry about China, I have to tell you. And worry is the word for the reason I think your question was hinting, that if things go wrong in China, we will feel that in a very big way across the Himalayas in India. I just hope that that's not going to happen. China will manage a political decentralization which China needs more deftly than one fears that uh, on this. Thank you. My goodness, there still are a lot of questions. Uh, one here, one there, and we'll come back to you. And I also have a question, so I don't want to be left out. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, you're the Indi Paul Eckert of the Reuters News Agency in Washington. The Indian delegation here for the G20 and the IMF uh, has attracted the, uh, the attention of the U.S. business community again over that uh, tax proposal that ha covers retroactive uh, transactions. I'm not sure if that's part of the GST you were addressing earlier, but uh, can you tell us how, how India plans to proceed, if, if the, uh, especially if it seems as, as the businesses uh, assert that it would uh, lead to a, a cooling of interest in the Indian economy by the foreign investment community? Thanks. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Takeuchi. I'm uh, working in, in uh, Johns Hopkins University as uh, for, for Indians, Indian study. And I'd like to ask you about the nuclear plants market of India now. You know, uh, what's going on? Uh, actually, um, um, the uh, Indian liability law, it's a very controversial between um, India and U.S., not only that, with Japan also. So Japan is also uh, waiting for for that uh, situation uh, improved, and uh, because it's uh, it has a negotiation for uh, nuclear uh, cooperation with India. So then, uh, uh, what is the problem, uh, and uh, what do you think uh, necessary for the the uh, breakthrough of this issue? Thank you. And uh, let me ask uh, the third question, Kashik, which is actually a three-part question. You were, you were very uh, uh, optimistic about uh, the growth of infrastructure and investment. So can you give us some idea of what are the plans in terms of amounts allocated for uh, infrastructure investment in India relative to the past? Secondly, do you believe that if infrastructure is the binding constraint to growth in India, that India can continue to grow rapidly just on account of easing bottlenecks to infrastructure, even without continuing reforms, whether they be in multi-brand retailing, et cetera. And third, what struck me in my last visit there a month ago was how incredibly advanced India is in public-private partnerships in infrastructure, way ahead of virtually any other developing country. And what lessons can we derive from that? How has India done it? This is a really important question for other countries, in particular countries like Indonesia, who are asking this question. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was uh, beginning to wonder whether there won't be questions which I won't be able to answer, and there were two this time. I have to... Uh, um, um, on the retrospective tax case um, and on the nuclear liability, I really have to give it a miss uh, because my knowledge is that of our newspaper readers. I mean, it's, it's a part of uh, intricacies uh, in there, which really, as a policymaker, I don't deal with. So I'm, I'm going to just give those a miss. In the NSG, uh, nuclear um, uh, liability, one thing you have to remember, which complicates matters over here, is that... Uh, 
uh, there are what 40, 44 or 45 nuclear supplier countries. So uh, the dependencies you are, I'm sure there are calculations going on, is that uh, the liability laws must be such that you keep up a couple of those active and you get supplies from that. So I'm sure that's playing a role. And on the Vodafone and the retrospective uh, tax case also, I'll simply say that uh, the country is aware that you don't want to do anything to jeopardize the long-run interest. And also, in general, it is best to be as uh, prospective as possible. You don't want to go retrospective. But there are legislative details that I know some of my colleagues are fully into the thick of that and like on nuclear liability, which I don't know enough. So basically, I'm giving, begging no comments on these, but lots of comments on infrastructure. Let me. Uh, the, so the volume is uh, what is being attempted. This is the domain of uh, the a plan is that over the next five years, which means actually from now over these uh, coming five years, uh, $1 trillion worth of uh, infrastructural investment is what India is planning. And our aim is to raise half of that uh, from the private sector. So your PPP question is bang on. India's into a PPP mode in a very, very big way. India has come to this very recently, and you know we come from a history of a lot of government activism. So moving over completely to handing it over to the market, there is a still a resistance to that. And PPP is the compromise that we struck, and it's worked very well in certain areas. I mean, it's very simple things that even people visiting Delhi will see, that for a lot of our roads, as you come in from Delhi's airport into the city, the toll is being managed through a PPP contract. I mean, you uh, look for a private sector who does a bid, who gets this, they collect the toll money, and the government may have to do some initial support, but the government is working with them. This has worked just very well. However, uh, Vikram, there are warning signs over here. You have to be careful. In fact, in one of the bilaterals with Britain, uh, is was the chancellor there telling us that Britain has this long history of PPPs, that you have to be very careful in PPP contracts because you're getting two very different creatures together in one cage, one that is trying to make profits and the other, you don't know what it's trying to make. You've got them both together in a cage. And unless these contracts are done very, very well, you can have one side taking the other for a ride. Just that very luckily, our first moves on the PPP and the development of infrastructure have gone off very well. What's happening, and this is the bit of a worrying side, so I'm very optimistic on infrastructure, but since a lot of this infrastructure is being driven really by city-based elite policymakers, very acutely aware of how India is falling short of China, but all their examples are what they are seeing in Beijing and Shanghai and the cities. Our infrastructure in the rural areas and need a stronger Philip than they are getting. So overall infrastructure will pick up. We will use PPP, 500 million, as we said, from the private sector, and contracts are being worked out for long-run money to come in. But we have to keep up pressure that a lot of this infrastructure, which many of the city-based people who do not directly feel, nevertheless have a very big impact for India. Hopefully, there will be some move on that as well. Kaushik, I want to thank you very much for an absolutely super uh, afternoon presentation. It was really very interesting, and on behalf of all of you, uh, thanks a lot, and please give Kaushik a hand. <laughs>